Welcome to Walk in Truth. We're in Esther chapter 3 with a message, Haman schemes, Mordecai stands, but heaven rules. Haman is going to plot his terrible decree against the Jews. Mordecai won't bow, but heaven is overruling all of it with the providential unseen hand of God, but his fingerprints are everywhere. We'll learn more about that today on Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, we want to let you know that this is a listener-supported ministry. Call with your gift at 844-48-TRUTH. That's 844-48-TRUTH. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Esther 3, verse 1, it says, After these events, your version may say after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Now, we've been talking a little bit about how when stories unfold, you usually, in the first part of a movie or a book, you will get the major characters presented to you, and you'll get maybe a little backstory about each of them. But I believe if I have the count right, uh, Haman is the fifth major character introduced to us, but we don't, we don't get to see him until chapter 3. And some believe that his name, Haman, actually hails from the 60s or 70s when people would go around saying, hey, man. So I think that's what John Corson said, that that was the origin of hey, man's name. So if that helps you remember, hey, man. I listened to a sermon that Alistair Begg had given on this chapter, and he said he started calling Haman, Haman the Horrible. So if that fits for you, uh, it's certainly appropriate. He enters the scene as the villain of the story, and he enters the scene in chapter 3. Notice it says, after these events, the king promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. We'll talk about that in a moment. And advanced him, notice, and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Now, my title, uh, talking about Mordecai taking a stand, as many of you have studied the book of Esther, you know later it will be Mordecai who challenges Esther to stand and say to her the famous words by which we have named the series, Perhaps you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's what we've named the big picture of this series. But before Esther is asked to stand by cousin Mordecai, who was her guardian and really her adoptive father, uh, first Mordecai will have to stand in this chapter. And I just want to say by application right out of the gate that if you're going to ask other people to take stands, you must model standing yourself. It is easy to tell somebody else in another situation, you need to take your stand. You need, to, you need to be willing to be brave. But if you're a leader, you have to model standing before others are going to be willing to stand, either with you, behind you, or side by side. Amen? And so we need more people who are willing to take a stand in our culture and even in the church culture. Uh, the book of Ephesians is where I want to take you because I want to show you that there is a spiritual component Ephesians 6 behind this whole thing as this chapter will unfold. This is familiar territory to many of us, but I want to show you this idea of standing from the, the spiritual perspective in terms of spiritual warfare. As Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says these words, 
He says, finally, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, Ephesians 6.12, is not against flesh and blood. Now, Mordecai could see his struggle against Haman, but Paul says, ultimately, it's not against humanity, it's not against flesh and blood, but the struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, in light of that battle, Ephesians 6.13, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to what? To stand firm. So, as we turn back to the book of Esther, I ask you this question. Are you doing everything to stand firm? Now you might ask me, well, what does it mean to do everything to stand firm? Well, that section tells you what it means. It means to put on the full armor of God. And the armor of God is simply a metaphor for the power and presence of God. It's a picture of a believer in subjection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Another way to put it is Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. It goes on to say in that same chapter, put on the armor of light. You are in a battle. You have to realize that. In fact, the pundits, the talking heads of our times, if they could just realize that much of what we're seeing in our culture, in other parts of the world, in struggles with hatred and uh, you know, opposing ideas and, and all that we see in our world has spiritual origins, especially explaining the history of the Jewish uh, people and the nation of Israel, and even today. When you see the hatred that comes out, you need to understand there's a spiritual explanation in the Bible for that. And that same battle now comes to us as believers and we are called to stand. Mordecai's stance in this chapter should be a reminder that we are called to stand. Now we got to pick our battles, no doubt. There are things in this world, we, we go to the workplace, we've got to deal with you know, unbelievers, and we've got to deal with all kinds of different stuff. But there are things that are non-negotiables for the Christian. And Jesus even told us that we have to count the cost. And so there is there spiritual warfare that is behind Haman's actions in this chapter. But the chapter begins with Esther 3.1, after these events. Now, whenever you're reading your Bible and you see after these things or after these events, what do you do? You look back, right? Well, what came before is the elevation of Esther as the queen of Persia, right? And Esther's elevation as queen has a bigger purpose behind it. You see, she's being elevated by God through what we call, would call everyday circumstances. God takes, he exploits evil for his good purposes to elevate Esther to save his people. But something else happened, and we, we looked at this at the end of chapter 2. In those days, 2.21, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he learned of this plot of these two men who were plotting to kill the king. He exposed it. He told Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. The plot was investigated, found to be so, and these men were dealt with severely. 
And it was documented in the, it was written what Mordecai had done in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So Mordecai was the one responsible for revealing the assassination plot and it was written down. But then the next verse says, after these events, after Mordecai exposed an assassination plot, wouldn't you think that you would read next? And Mordecai advanced and got a uh, high position in the court because of his great bravery. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you expect to see that? Wouldn't you expect to see something like this? And then Mordecai was promoted by the king in gratitude for exposing this assassination plot and saving his life. But that's not what you read. Rather, you read about the elevation of a man named Haman from the 60s or 70s. What is going on here? Why did Mordecai get passed over and Haman get elevated? Where did Haman come from? It seems like the dude comes out of left field in the narrative. Where's he been? Now we learn about Haman and Mordecai doesn't get the promotion. How many of you have had in your career where you know, you've been working hard and you know, you've been doing great things and maybe it even came to the boss's attention and then there's a time for a promotion and you don't get the promotion? And some dude named Hey Man, who goes around the company saying, Hey man, got the promotion over you. That's a bummer. And that's something hard that, that we face in life. Sometimes we, we do all the right things and we get passed over for the promotion. But you know what? God's timing is going to be perfect. And there's a reason why this all happens the way it does. And Mordecai is going to have to wait, but later he will be promoted. And sometimes waiting, although it's the hardest part, can be God's actual providential hand in your life. Sometimes there's a door that opens and maybe it's not the best door for you or it's not the best time for that door. And we don't always see all the layers and the details. That's why we have to trust in the Lord. We have to trust in God's timing and God's providence, even though we always can't make sense of it. And so... Uh, Mordecai is going to take his stand in this chapter. After these events, he is not promoted. There's another man, and he is Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, some of you are reading your Bible, and you're like, what in the world is an Agagite? Well, there is a backstory to this, and this Agagite is connected to the Amalekites. And I I think you need to see the backstory, so I want you to turn to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Here's the backstory. The children of Israel have been delivered by God's mighty hand. Uh, the Passover has happened. They've gone out of Egypt with the treasures of Egypt, God's mighty hand, and God is leading them out. And uh, he has supplied water for them in a miraculous way. And uh, here's what happens. This is Exodus 17. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek, 17.9 of Exodus. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, for those of you who have read the story before, you know that Moses is on the top of the hill. Joshua's down fight, fighting the Amalekites. They've attacked Israel. Israel's vulnerable at this point. And uh, Moses is up on the top of the hill, and Aaron and Hur come up and hold his hands. And when ha Moses' hands are held up in 
a prayer posture before God, the Israelites prevail down. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. We understand that time can really get away from you. The day-to-day hustle can sometimes leave little time for the more important things in life, like Bible study. Remember that Pastor Michael's teachings can be heard at any time, day or night, on walkintruth.com. You don't have to worry that you have to get out of the car right now, because today's teaching is already online, ready for you to listen when it's most convenient for you. Visit walkintruth.com today to hear all the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. That's walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. I think you need to see the backstory, so I want you to turn to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Here's the backstory. The children of Israel have been delivered by God's mighty hand. Uh, The Passover has happened. They've gone out of Egypt with the treasures of Egypt, God's mighty hand, and God is leading them out. And uh, he has supplied water for them in a miraculous way. And uh, here's what happens. This is Exodus 17. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. 17.9 of Exodus. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, for those of you who have read the story before, you know that Moses is on the top of the hill. Joshua is down fighting the Amalekites. They've attacked Israel. Israel's vulnerable at this point. And uh, Moses is up on the top of the hill, and Aaron and Hur come up and hold his hands. And when Moses' hands are held up in a prayer posture before God, the Israelites prevail down in the war against Amalek. When Moses' hands get heavy and they drop, they start to lose the battle. And so Aaron and Hur come and hold up his, his arms, and Israel ends up getting the victory. And it's a victory over Amalek. Look at verse 13. It says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. So this is to be documented. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and named it the Lord is my banner. Now, many of you know that as Jehovah Nisi, N-I-S-S-I. The Lord is my banner. It could mean standard or flag. I have a friend that studies Hebrew a lot, and he believes that you could render this, looking at the Hebrew picture language, the Lord is the one I lean on. And my friend is always tempted to break out into, lean on me. When you're not strong. Anyway, we'll stop right there. (laughs) So, I just want you to park here for a second. The Lord is the one I lean on. The Lord is my banner. So they document the victory. Moses leaned on the Lord, if you will. He was on the top of the hill. And the Lord pronounces, he, he makes, he swears, notice, It it says, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek. What's your Bible say? From generation to generation. All right? With that in mind, turn over to 1 Samuel. So you got to go a little bit uh, to the right. 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right, so Israel, their history is unfolding. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. He's the son of Kish, and he is given a responsibility by God 
to protect the nation against enemies. So this is 1 Samuel 15.1. Samuel said to Saul, 1 Samuel 15.1, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now that's Exodus 17, what we just read. How he set himself against him on the way, that is, as they were going out of Egypt, while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go in light of this, says the Lord. And remember, he had sworn in Exodus 17, this is later, go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. And of course, this is a radical command by God to wipe out the nation. And this is one of those verses where people struggle. Did God really say to do this? Yes, he did. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. So just skip down uh, for the sake of time. So Saul defeated the Amalekites seven from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Now remember that Haman is an Agagite. This is in all likelihood his origin or his family tree or his genealogy or ethnicity. He comes from King Agag, king of the Amalekites. There are first century writers, Jewish writers, who by way of uh, connecting this name, connected the name Agagites to Romans in the first century. And they did it because they, the Romans were the enemies of Israel. They were occupying Israel in the time of Jesus. And so they called the Romans Agagites, some of the Jewish writers of the time. But I believe that right here, and this is what the rabbis would agree with, that actually Haman is an actual descendant of King Agag. And so we, here's the story. So, so he grabs the king alive and uh, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and so forth. Um, so, verse 10, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. A little bit about Saul's pride there. Then turned and proceeded uh, on down to Gilgal, 13. And Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord who? Your God. Oops. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Can everybody write in there your Bible? Justification, justification. I did obey. Isn't partial obedience obedience? 
I, I, I obeyed 60%. Isn't that good enough? No, obedience, folks, is obedience. So Saul's making his excuses. I did obey and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. It's their fault. The woman that you gave me, she gave to me. That's why I ate it. Just write Adam right there. Some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. I'm going to show you one more. Psalm 83. All right, go to the Psalms, a little past Esther, Psalm 83. And I, I want you just to get a full picture of the backdrop of this man's origins, Haman's origins. This is Psalm 83. It's a Psalm of Asaph. Skip down to verse 3, Psalm 83, 3. It says, They, that is the nations here, make shrewd plans, 83, 3, against thy people and conspire together against thy treasured ones. They have said, Psalm 83, 4, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let's wipe out Israel as a nation, that the name of Israel may be, be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against thee do they make a covenant. The tents of Edom, now some of the nations are named here that do this. The Ishmaelites, Moab, and the Hagrites. Gebel and Ammon, and who? There's Amalek. You have Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Notice what they say. They say, for, come and let us wipe them out as a nation. Now, with this backstory in mind, if you return to the book of Esther, when Haman is introduced, this is the history that you have to see. Uh, Haman is an Agagite. And his family line from Amalek is responsible for wanting to destroy God's people. Whenever a people group wants to destroy God's people, God takes that extremely personally. Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus when he confronted Saul before he became Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, when God's people are persecuted, God takes that personally. And by extension, when they're persecuted, it's as though they were persecuting Christ, but they can't get to Christ, and you represent Christ, so they want to persecute his people. And so Haman, with this history in mind, is a man that comes from these origins. And of course, he's going to continue this. Application point. Sometimes we don't uh, sometimes we don't do what God would call us to do. We, maybe it's partial obedience. Maybe we don't completely understand why God has told us to do something. 
And we either partially obey or we just wallow in our sin. And we don't realize that sometimes what God has called us to do is for multiple reasons beyond even our own lifetime. Do you know that when the book of Esther is unfolding, it's about 600 years removed from the time of King Saul and uh, it's way removed from the time of the Exodus. So you're talking about, you could say six generations or more later, the disobedience of Saul still reverberates through the nation of Israel. Well, sometimes we think obedience is just about us. However, our obedience to the Lord can bring blessings to future generations. We need to think in light of eternity beyond our own lifetime. And it's hard to do that, especially in a very individualistic society and age. But don't forget also that our disobedience can affect future generations negatively. King Saul is a perfect example of this. And we'll learn more about that tomorrow as we continue in Esther chapter 3. Well, in case you haven't already guessed, I'm Pastor Michael Lance. I'd like to remind you that this entire series in the book of Esther, taught by me, is available to you via a flash drive. When you send a gift of $30 or more to Walk in Truth at walkintruth.com, we'll send you the entire series, Esther, for such a time as this, for your $30 or more donation. You can check out all the information at walkintruth.com. Well, again, thanks for listening to this series, Esther, for such a time as this. Tune in tomorrow on this station to learn more about how your faithfulness and devotion to the Lord can not only bless you, but others around you. God bless you. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.